Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, along with my co-host, Bonnie Quinn. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and on Bloomberg.com. All right, let's spend some time chatting about the credit markets. And let's go out on the risk spectrum a little bit, talking high yield, talking maybe even fallen angels. We can do that with Paul Benson. Head of Fixed Income Efficient Beta. The firm is Mellon, a BNY Mellon investment management firm. They have $558 billion. That's with a B under management located in San Francisco. Paul, thanks so much for joining us here. You know, first of all, I want to talk about risk return. Talk to us a little bit about fallen angels. What is a fallen angel and what kind of activity are we seeing in that market? Yeah, no, this is a great uh, topic for today. Fallen angels have really come onto the the marketplace here uh, in in size in this uh, aftermath of the COVID-19 uh, crisis. So what a fallen angel is, is it's just an investment-grade bond that has been downgraded. So remember, the investment-grade uh, sort of ends at the bottom tier at the triple B rating level, downgraded below triple B, so it's now double B or lower. That enters the high-yield portion. So really, it's just a high-yield bond that once was an investment-grade bond. And what investors are seeing is that these bonds have really, really attractive risk return characteristics that make them for a a terrific investment in in this kind of environment. So give us some examples of some fallen angels that have, you know, kind of come to the fore here during the pandemic. So there are actually a ton. So what's exciting about this this pandemic, uh, you know, if anything can be exciting from an investor perspective, it is that it's an unprecedented deluge of activity in the sort of ratings migration uh, perspective. And the markets really are not very efficient on the fixed income side at handling that trans- transmission from investment-grade investors to high-yield investors. So, you know, in a typical year, you might have $20 billion, $30 billion of downgrades across a handful of bonds or, or maybe 10 or 15 bonds. In 2020 so far, we've had, we've had almost $200 billion mm. wow. of fallen angel downgrades. And this spans, you know, across more than 200 bonds, 250 bonds. Uh, and it's not just one sector. You know, like in, in the energy crisis in 2016, it was predominantly energy bonds. Now, this is across everything. This is across consumer cyclicals. This is across banking. This is across capital goods, basic industry. You know, you're basically seeing it all here. And that actually is, is a real boon for high-yield investors uh, because a diversified play is going to allow you a much greater chance of success of harvesting that that structural uh, risk premium, that discount, rather than you know some idiosyncratic uh, uh, investment. So, Paul, when a bond gets downgraded from investment grade to uh, non-investment grade, does that mean a lot of owners of that bond have to sell by because of their charter? They can't own non-investment grade debt. Is that kind of how the play starts? Exactly, exactly. And if you look at the, the sort of the, the, the last 10 years, you know, within the IG space, investment grade space, you'll see that there's been a very inexorable rise in passive, uh, passive managers. So, you know, think of not just indexing, traditional indexing, the growth of that uh, as, you know, fees have been pushed lower, but also areas like ETFs. A lot of these ETFs are very passive in nature. And so you've got two camps. You've got one camp 
which is traditional, for example, pension plans that have strict guidelines that say, you know, thou shalt not invest in junk bonds. And so, you know, if, if I'm managing an IG portfolio for a client like that, and a bond gets downgraded below uh, investment grade, it becomes a fallen angel. Even if I think it's a very, very attractive investment and it's the worst possible time to sell, I don't have a choice. I have to sell it. Now, that becomes a real benefit for the folks on the other side. If you're a high-yield investor, and especially if you're an investor focusing just on fallen angels, you can pick up these bonds at an incredible discount. All right, so, Paul, give us a sense of just kind of the – the credit quality uh, environment that we find ourselves in. I know as we kind of entered this pandemic in March, April, uh, you know, from a credit perspective, there's really concerns that we're going to see it just as huge wave of defaults, uh, particularly in the leverage loan business, the, the high yield market business. Have we in fact seen that? You know, that's been the story of the year. It's, you know, people tend to panic when, when, when things uh, when volatility picks up, the first instinct is to panic. And, you know, exactly what we saw with all the news articles, all the prognostications, even from the major uh, houses predicting, you know, an unprecedented uh, deluge of, of defaults. And that just has not uh, materialized. And further, you know, what really scares us a little bit is when you look under the hood, and, and that's what we're really good at as a quantity, we're a quantitative investment manager, so we really dive into the details. And people are misinterpreting default rates by and large. They're looking at broad, you know, Moody's, S&P type uh, speculative grade default rates, which have a completely different composition than what investors, institutional investors are actually investing in. You know, these S&P and Moody's default rates include these very small companies, they include floating rate debt, all sorts of stuff, whereas, you know, 70% of the institutional investors are focused on big, big investable benchmarks, such as the Bloomberg Barclays High Yield Corporate Index or, you know, the Bamble Master II Index. These benchmarks have only seen about half of the default rates that, um, that these sort of, you know, worst-case uh, prognostications came out at. And so we're looking at numbers like, like you know, sub-4% year-to-date. Uh, you know, this is not this is this is certainly higher than last year, but it's not anything to be overly concerned about as a high yield investor. Very interesting. Hey, Paul, thanks so much for joining us here. This is part of the market we don't probably don't spend enough time on, but certainly some opportunities there. The fallen angels, the high yield credit market, the leverage loan uh, business. Uh, Paul Benson, head of fixed income efficient beta at Mellon giving us his thoughts again on these fallen angels uh, and some of the higher leverage loan sectors of the marketplace. Yes, they've been impacted by the uh, economic downturn uh, resulting from the pandemic, but probably performing better than expected. So some opportunities there. More to come. This is Bloomberg. Now, in terms of a new Biden administration, a lot of folks are wondering what it means for their industries. What kind of policies will the new administration uh, come up with for, for specific industries? One of those industries is technology. Uh, there's obviously a big issue with China. There's a big issue with to what extent does technology in the United States need to be uh, regulated? Victoria Espinel, President and Chief Executive Officer of BSA, the Software Alliance, based in Washington, D.C. She joins us now. So, Victoria, you know, we think about technology in the United States. Historically, the U.S. has taken a very light hand to regulating technology, and one could argue that's been maybe one of the main catalysts for the growth and development of 
tech in the U.S., the Silicon Valley, and all of that. How do you expect President-elect Joe Biden and his administration to uh, to manage technology policy? Well, first of all, I would say that I don't think it's about no regulation or lots of regulation. I think it's about smart regulation, you know, where it's appropriate. Um, in terms of the Biden administration, you know, I'm expecting that we're going to see continue to see some increased scrutiny on the technology industry. Um, I think there are some legitimate issues that need to be concerned uh, that need to be addressed. And, and I think the Biden administration will focus on that. You know, I will say, speaking for the enterprise software industry, which is BSA, we're excited to work with the administration on those. We feel like there are a number of places where laws and regulations could be updated and improved and modernized. Um, and we are really looking for places where we can find solutions. There are some thorny issues out there, artificial intelligence, privacy, cybersecurity. So we, um, you know, as an as a organization, as an industry, we try not to run from challenges, but to try to address them. And we're really excited about working with the Biden administration on how to find some long-term solutions to some of the real problems that are out there. So, Victoria, one of the problems that has really come to the fore over the last several years has been uh, China and uh, technology transfers between the U.S. and China. And there's some concern that there might be a technology cold war developing between, let's call it China, and just broadly defined the West. How do you expect the Biden administration, or what would you recommend to the Biden administration uh, as it thinks about technology policy vis-a-vis China? I think that's going to be a major issue going forward. You know, in terms of what I would expect from the Biden administration, I I think a Biden administration is going to be tough on China. I think, you know, look, there's there's a whole range of issues beyond the technology issues and the economic issues with China, right? Human rights, Taiwan, the situation in Hong Kong. Um, There have been a number of approaches the Trump administration has taken on the economic side. Tariffs and trade have gotten the most attention, I would say. But you know, other approaches, including export controls, investment restrictions. Of course, when the Biden administration goes in, they're going to do their own assessment of what the issues are and what the approaches are. I think they're going to bring a lot of expertise to that assessment. But I would expect that coming out of that, we're going to see two differences in terms of approach, broadly speaking. One, I think, is I think there will be a focus on a broader range of issues. So again, not just uh, economic issues, but issues like human rights, for example. I, I expect we'll see more um, focus on that from the Biden administration. And even in the the economic issues, I think we will see a focus on trying to come up with long-term solutions to those issues. And and again, it's sort of a broader range of economic issues that we face with China, including. Um, in the technology space. The second difference I expect that we will see is working with other countries and building alliances. You know, the United States is not the only country certainly that has concerns with China. And I think the U.S. will address its concerns directly with China. But also I expect um, the Biden administration will be looking to build alliances and be doing that in concert with other countries that also share those concerns. Um, The last thing I would say is you know, the uh, President-elect Biden made a major commitment during the campaign in terms of R&D investment in technology. Um, the United States, unlike China, a lot of our investment in the United States comes from the private sector, and I think that's appropriate. But it's also great to see that this administration is going to be focused on putting public sector, significant public sector funding 
into basic R&D investment. Um, I think that's a really important part of this. Interesting. So, Victoria, I guess as it relates to China, one of the more immediate things that the incoming Biden administration will need to address is TikTok. I'm not even sure where we are on the TikTok issue. Can you bring us up to date? Well, um, you know, in terms of the administration, I I think the uh, I'll let the administration speak for itself. And I think what they've said is that it's too early for them to say. But, you know, I guess what I would say more generally is I don't think this is an administration where policy is going to be determined by any one particular company in general. I think it's going to be an administration that is, as I said, looking to find ways to set global standards and rein in bad actors of, of all different kinds. Um, but I think it's going to be, my, I anticipate it will be a policy approach that is more about finding that long-term sustainable durable framework as opposed to being driven by any one particular company or one particular situation. So, Victoria, I guess the the other thing is just kind of, you know, the big U.S. technology companies, particularly the, the social platforms, do you expect them to face continued scrutiny, increased scrutiny? Is this something that is just going to be a fact of life for the Facebooks of the world and, and, and others? Um, so I'll say this, you know, as my organization doesn't represent Facebook, you know, we're okay. the enterprise B2B side of the software industry. Um, but I think I think it's also fair to say that the tech industry, including the social media platforms, I think will face increasing scrutiny. I think we're going to see that in competition. I think we're going to see that in accountability issues, platform accountability issues generally. I think that, um, you know, that has been true for a while. So that will not be new with the Biden administration. But I think it, I anticipate that there will be increased scrutiny in the Biden administration. And again, as I was saying at the beginning, and I think there are some legitimate concerns that need to be addressed. And, um, you know, that's something I think the, the Biden administration will be focused on as well. Hey, Victoria, thank you so much. We really appreciate your thoughts and insight. Victoria Espinel, President and Chief Executive Officer of BSA, the Software Alliance. They're based uh, in Washington, D.C., giving us some thoughts about how the incoming Biden administration may think about policy as it relates to technology, particularly the software companies. And again, uh, probably issue number one uh, on day one will be the relationship of, uh, with the U.S. and China as it relates to technology. We are waiting for a discussion uh, on Bloomberg Television between Boeing CEO Dave Calhoun and Reiner CEO Michael O'Leary. They announced a deal today for some planes to be acquired by Ryanair. Let's chat with George Ferguson, Senior Aerospace Defense and Airlines Analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence on what we might hear. So, George, talk to us a little bit about this deal for Boeing uh, with uh, Ryanair. It seems like really good news for Boeing here. Yeah, thanks, Paul. I think it's absolute endorsement here for uh, the Boeing Max and the fixes that have taken place, and it's where you know where Ryanair sees that whole process. They must feel pretty comfortable of uh, the airplane's viability. We've been saying it's viable, so I think they they feel pretty comfortable, and they're and they're coming in for a nice size order, seventy five. I actually thought it might have been larger, and I, I think it's not larger. Maybe a testament to the fact that. We heard the Boeing CEO, Calhoun, say they're not going to buy themselves back into the market or something like that. Not an exact quote, but I think maybe a testament. You know, we knew Ryanair was sort of sniffing around, looking for an order, actually for I think it's been at least a year or so. They love to buy airplanes cheap. My guess is that maybe um, 
uh, O'Leary didn't get quite the prices he wanted and sort of stepped in for 75. Uh, but look, a good endorsement, good endorsement for the airplane, uh, good news for Boeing, and probably good news for Ryanair, too. Yeah, so George, talk to us about this 737 MAX. I, you know, I just speaking for myself, you know, if I were to, you know, actually take a flight, which you know, is a huge if here in this pandemic world, and I walked up to the gate and I looked out the window and I saw 737 MAX parked in my gate, I'd have no problems getting on the plane. Am I, <laughs> am I the exception or how do you think this plane is going to be uh, kind of embraced by the airlines as well as and, and, and the passengers? Yeah, you know, I think that um, I think that uh, the public has sort of a short memory on some of these things, and I, I think there are some people that would be concerned about flying the Max given the history. Uh, I think that you know, really, some of their concerns should be put to bed by the fact that the FAA and the European regulators have really poured over the airplane to make sure it's safe. They really don't want egg in their face with it, with another problem with the airplane. And we're now going to have simulator training for the pilots transitioning from the 737-8 to the MAX, which I think should also give people comfort. I think you'll see advertising campaigns around some of those, uh, you know, some of that training. Um, and look, again, I think that there, there'll be a short memory and, you know, sort of have Ryanair buying here and have this airplane feathered into their fleet out in 2021. American starts to fly, I think, at the end of the year here. You know, given the news around the pandemic, I think it'll get lost. And I think there won't be as much reticence to fly the airplane had they're not been sort of the backdrop of a lot more bigger news stories right right now. So, George, I think the last time we chatted, one of the discussion points was China. Um, it's really important uh, that China certify the 737 MAX. A, it's a huge market. B, uh, it's an economy that's actually growing. They're, they're out of their lockdown. And their uh, people are beginning to travel. Uh, any sense of when we'll get the green light from China as it relates to the 737 MAX? Yeah, I mean, I'm hearing that, the, you know, potentially we could see something like that in the new year. I mean, I think they'll, the Chinese will want to find a way to, I don't know what the right word is, embrace the Biden administration as they come in. They'd love to be, I think, in the good graces of the Biden administration to change the tone, hopefully from the Trump administration to the Chinese when it comes to trade. And I think you'll see it closer to, to Joe Biden President-elect Biden coming into power. but So I would expect it sometime early next year, and it's a, it is a core market, super important for Biden. Talk to us, George, you know, about Boeing here. Maybe a little bit of a post-mortem here. We've got the, a little bit of a hindsight here. It just it feels like they didn't manage the process well. I'm not sure, you know, what else they could have done, but it just feels like they didn't manage the process well. What's the, what's the feeling among, you know, you aviation geeks that, you know, look at this stuff all the time? Yeah, so uh, I do think they, um, I, I do think, you know, perhaps a little bit of hubris uh, took over at Boeing, uh, a little bit of, of marketing uh, and managing financial statements uh, was prioritized over engineering. And, you know, I think Calhoun's job is really to make sure that he resets that, um, you know, resets that, uh, you know, that uh, environment at Boeing where the focus is on solid engineering you try to you know you keep the hubris down, um, and so I you know it feels like uh, as they've moved the airplane through the recertification process, it feels like they're getting that back in order. You know, look, I think it's a constant challenge. They are one of the preeminent airplane builders in the world. You know, one of the two compared to Airbus, and I think they really have to manage that that culture going forward. So it feels like it's gotten 
better, and it looks like they've really done a good job in recertification. I think Calhoun and his successor really need to think about keeping that engineering culture forefront at the company. And I think they've got to start to think about their next product, you know, and that's another engineering challenge. So, George, I know you and the other, again, aviation geeks, you guys take your yearly pilgrimage to either, you know, London or Paris for the annual air shows, which is, you know, just a scam in and of itself, in my opinion. But you guys do it every year. What happens at the next time when post-pandemic you guys meet in Paris and or London? What's Boeing's position going to be in terms of, you know, selling the 737 MAX? Are they going to be able to successfully uh, put some more of these planes into the fleet? Well, so I think today was, again, a, you know, a big endorsement there for their ability to sell the airplane. Um, I don't know anything about a scam. Going to London, <laughs> but, uh, it's a big um, cocktail party is what it, I think. That's right. <laughs> Look, there's still, there's still a heck of a lot of orders in the backlog. And I think really their job is to go out and touch those customers and, and get them happy yep. about the airplane and wanting to take those orders in the backlog. Because they, the, the beauty is they don't have to sell the plane it's already sold. Yep. You've got to get that backlog delivered. All right, George. Thanks so much. Uh, we appreciate it. As always, I look forward to you making your pilgrimage over to London and Paris. George Ferguson, Senior Aerospace Defense and Airlines Analyst for uh, Bloomberg Intelligence. It is time for Bloomberg Opinion. We're joined today by Nir Kaser, founder of Unison Advisors and a Bloomberg Opinion columnist. Nir, thanks so much for joining us. I know you and Tim O'Brien of Bloomberg Opinion are out with a column today where you're, you're talking about what Congress should consider as it does move forward slowly on a fourth round of fiscal stimulus. What are some of your key takeaways that you think Congress really needs to think about here? Well, um, good morning, Paul. Thanks for having me. Um, we're, um, you know, we think uh, that more stimulus is probably necessary. You know, the economy is improving, markets are up. It looks like there's light at the end of the tunnel, so to speak, with a vaccine coming. Uh, but there's still a lot of suffering, and it's not clear what the timing around that is going to be. So more, stimul- more stimulus is probably appropriate, probably in around the size that they're thinking about. But there's an, it's, it's another opportunity to sort of step back and ask, what is the point of the stimulus? What are we trying to accomplish? You know, if, if you just uh, pull the back of the lens a bit, uh, you know, we will have spent, if, if this package is roughly a trillion dollars, we will have already spent, uh, you know, roughly $2.7 trillion with the CARES Act for a total of roughly $4 trillion. And $4 trillion could do a lot of things. I mean, it could build infrastructure, it could bolster education and public health. Um, and, and we're suggesting that we just take a step back and maybe give some bigger thought to uh, the impact that that kind of money could have on the entire economy, not just certain segments of it. So it's interesting here. I think you know some of the uh, issues here, the concerns here, the discussion points here are how much should go to individuals versus how much should go to maybe industries and companies to support employment and growth. How much should go to states and municipalities? How do you think Congress is thinking about this, and where, where do you think they will allocate some of uh, this upcoming stimulus? Well, you know, based on what they've said, um, it sounds like this, um, we'll see what the final details are, but it sounds like this uh, latest round of relief is going to be, um, it's going to go to supplemental uh, unemployment insurance for unemployed Americans. It'll go to uh, small business, state and local governments that are obviously badly hurting. Um, and, then, and then some money sprinkled around for various things, including public health and some other, and some other initiatives, um, and, um, which is all fine, but it sort of continues this um, this sort of, uh, you know, crisis relief approach that we've had really since the 2008 financial crisis, 
where we're just really sticking fingers in a dam and just plugging whatever holes are there. And while that is necessary to some extent, um, it, it does put us in a situation where we have various groups in with, you know, within the economy that are fighting over, over money. You know, in 2008, it was mostly Wall Street and corporate America that got the money. And, you know, we're living with the ramifications of that to some extent today. Um, you know, today, appropriately, more of the money should go to individuals that are suffering from this pandemic and small business that are also suffering. But, but what they really ought to think about is, is there a way to spend this money in a way that improves the entire economy as a whole? And, you know, what, some, of the, some of the data that we cite in the piece is instructive, I think. If you, if you take a look at this economy from a longer-term longer perspective, what you see is that for, for decades, we've had lower economic growth. We have a situation where half of households in America don't make a living wage. We have roughly, by credible estimates, 45 million Americans that are food insecure. And that speaks not only to the, the, the problems of the pandemic. It speaks to a larger systematic problem of the functioning of the economy. And what we're saying is what we need is robust investment in education and infrastructure and public health. And that kind of money, we believe, will, will go to the benefit of everyone, both business, uh, big and small, and individuals. So, Nira, it's you know you talk about the food insecure. I'm glad you brought that up because you know we still have, you know, roughly 10 million uh, workers that have yet to recover their jobs that were lost during the pandemic. We've got we see every night on the news these incredibly long lines of cars going to food banks and so on. So it seems like the near term immediate need is so pronounced that it, it might be tough to kind of think about some of those longer term investment areas, whether it's education or skills and things like that. How do you, again, how do you try to, how do you think Congress is thinking about that balance? Well, that's fair. And I think the way that they are thinking about it, again, is just let's take care of the immediate problem. But, but I would suggest that it's helpful to try to connect the dots. It's not clear to me, and I, I don't think we should take for granted, that once this pandemic passes, that these problems that we're seeing, that all of these 10 million jobs um, we'll, we'll be back and that food insecurity will, will, will improve. It's possible that this pandemic has caused sort of longer lasting systemic problems to the economy, the roots of which were already in place before the pandemic came. Mm. The pandemic just, just sort of brought them to the floor, right? And if that's the case, I don't think it's going to be enough to spend a trillion dollars on supplemental unemployment insurance and, and help uh, to small business and the like. I think the, the question is going to be, how do we get more jobs? How do we get how do we improve training for workers? How do we, um, in, how do we uh, improve the wages of, of, uh, of working Americans? And it seems to me that that's going to take a sort of a longer-term vision and a longer-term investment in things like education and infrastructure. So, Nira, give us a sense of kind of how this timing might play out. I know we're in this lame duck session here. Do we expect something to come out of this lame duck Congress now? And then after President-elect uh, Biden is sworn in on January 20th with a new Congress, that there may be something bigger, broader that maybe you're, you're thinking about? Well, I think they understand that uh, it's going to have to be soon. It's probably going to have to be this year if they want to have something okay. passed. Um, and if they don't get it done, then it's probably going to get kicked into the next administration. In terms of what can happen in, under a Biden administration, I think it really depends on what happens in Georgia. Yep. Um, you know, if the Republicans hold the Senate, then I think you're looking at a stimulus package to the extent you ever get one um, that looks roughly like the one we're talking about today. On the other hand, if the Democrats take the Senate um, and they, you know, they hold the White House and Congress, then I think it opens up. Uh, I think it opens it up to, to a much broader initiative to the extent that they want to do it. Something that's more New Deal-esque, you know, but it really depends on whether they'll have the votes. 
Exactly. So, I mean, it, you know, infrastructure near seems to be something that is bipartisan. That seems to be the, the, the party line here that infrastructure is, in fact, bipartisan. Is that money well spent, do you think, if we can move down that road and maybe get my, you know, gateway project done so I can take the train into the city in a, with a safe tunnel? That would be nice, wouldn't it? Yeah, I mean, infrastructure, I think, is one of those things that, um, that everyone can benefit from. Obviously, we need infrastructure in, in, in various realms, um, you know, in order to, to sort of lay the foundation for business and for commerce and all, for all that, obviously. But also infrastructure is a jobs program as well. So, I mean, you have 10 million Americans right now that have lost their jobs or looking for work. And, um, you know, in a big, ambitious infrastructure project from the federal government is a, hi- is a hiring opportunity for millions of Americans. Um, and potentially to, 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 to provide them not only with training, but good paying jobs. Um, and, and not to mention all the knock-on effects from having improved infrastructure and transportation, in Wi-Fi, and, you know, we can think of many applications. So infrastructure is, is a great example of a program where the money that you spend is not so much relief as it is investment. Um, and that investment, you know, we can, we can look back to the 1930s and 1940s for ambitious big government projects that paved the way yep. for the uh, prosperity um, that all Americans enjoyed in the 50s, 60s, yep. um, and the early 1970s. And we can have that again. Hey, Neer, thanks so much for joining us. We appreciate it. As always, Neil Kaysar, founder of Unison Advisors and a Bloomberg Opinion column. So you can read all of Neer's uh, work on Bloomberg.com slash opinion or OPIN. Go on the terminal. We'll have more coming up. This is Bloomberg Markets. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Bonnie Quinn. I'm on Twitter at Bonnie Quinn. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.